I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we find ourselves this morning in continuation of our Easter series. We began our approach to Resurrection Sunday just two weeks ago with 1 Corinthians 15. And many of you may be wondering to yourselves if we've already looked at what is the foremost text on the importance and the significance of the resurrection, where on earth could we be looking for Resurrection Sunday? And so let me start by saying this, that we are in constant need. We are in constant need of an ever-growing, ever-increasing view of Christ and His glory. And I want to qualify that statement with this. That is not to say that we are in need of a progressively changing view of Christ, but that we need to be ever-increasing in our tiny brains is this, that our understanding of just how big and awesome and powerful and glorious Christ is must constantly bring us to awe of the resurrected Christ. And so it's not my job this morning to give you a grander view of Christ's glory and might as seen in the resurrection. It is my job this morning to turn the wandering gaze of all of us to the word and to see the grand view of Christ's glory in the resurrection as revealed there. Because as we look at some of the elements of the resurrection story and we look at this portrait, this beautiful portrait of the preeminence of Christ painted for us by Paul to the church at Colossae, what I want us to grasp is that this very picture of the grand nature of Christ is what the disciples and the followers of Christ saw in the resurrected Christ. And that is what moved them in obedience to realizing the resurrected Christ as seen in God's word. I coach my daughter's soccer team. Now to this point, I have not found myself to be a very successful coach by any metrics that you may choose to use. Because I've tried to see if there was any way that I could see that myself as kind of like, where is there any progress here, right? Back in the fall, we had to play our final game indoors because of scheduling delays and rain and such and all that. So to that point, we had lost every game we played by a wide margin. And we lost that game too. But uh, it was so hard to get that group to focus, just there was, some, there, was, there was a lot of talent, there was a lot of promise on the team, but getting them to focus, to, to just watch the ball, right? That was what I, I just tried to try so hard to get them to do, but they wanted to watch their parents and their brothers and sisters and what was going on in the other field, and they wanted to see what the other players were doing, all that kind of stuff, right? So they, they couldn't get them to focus. But in this game, this last game, I saw a completely different team than I had seen all season. Why? Because playing indoors meant that the field had these, these bumper walls, right? And they had a net that kind of obstructed your view from being able to see the crowd, being able to see the parents, being able to see what was going on all around, right? And so what this meant is that the distractions were limited, which meant these kids were hyper-focused. Kids who couldn't focus at all were now hyper-focused on the ball. And that was our hardest-fought game of the season. And I tell you that story for this reason. I want all of us to kind of put up 
our bumpers today and intently focus on the resurrected Christ as revealed in the Word of God. Because if you do that, and then you take that and do it not just this day, but do it every day, intently focused on the resurrected Christ, as revealed in the Word of God, you will not leave this place the same, nor will you live every day the same. That's believer and non-believer alike. So I want to ask you again to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. As we read from Colossians chapter 1, our text this morning is verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, again, intently focus on celebrating the resurrection and living in light of the implications that it brings into our life, let us be overwhelmed by seeing and treasuring and savoring and finding our joy in the resurrected Christ. Let us not leave this place the same. If there is anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not know you, who has not submitted to the lordship of the preeminent resurrected Christ. I pray that you would draw them to yourself, overwhelm them with your grace this morning, and that they would not leave this place the same either. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, just briefly, Paul wants all believers to be compelled by the resurrected Christ as he is. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 15 when we looked at it just a couple of weeks ago. So he makes it a main point of focus for the church at Colossae as he's writing to counter uh, disbelief, wrong beliefs, detractors. He's writing to counter them and and he makes the resurrected Christ, he makes Christ the main focus to rightly see, grasp, and know Christ as Lord over all creation. Things seen and unseen, known and unknown. What is so simple yet profound is that he desires for this change to take place, for the church to grasp this, to know this, to cling to this. By what? It's so simple yet profound is that he does so by praying for them. And he does so by praying the Christ as revealed in Scripture. If you find your prayer life stale and repetitive, pray the Bible and see what kind of reinvigorated life it breathes into your soul and into your prayer life. And I want us to see just how that's Paul's focus. So back up just a little bit to verses 3 through 4 
there of Colossians 1, where he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So he begins by telling them how they are those who are writing this letter, which is Timothy and he and all the other churches are praying for them because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, verse 5. But then jump down there to verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then he tells the church what he's praying for them. If you ever want to encourage or admonish or love on or challenge or encourage or hold accountable a brother or sister, tell them what you're praying for them. Don't tell them what you think they ought to be doing or that they're doing this or that or that or whatever. What has your prayer life been like for that brother or sister? And tell them that. And this is what Paul says. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In his lordship, Christ has ultimately secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and fullness. And I want to start by giving us two truths. You'll look there on your outline. Hopefully you grabbed one on the way in. But that'll be how we walk through the word this morning. The answer will be on the screen behind me. I want to start by giving us two truths to frame our understanding of everything that we're about to unpack here in this beautiful portrait painted for us in verses 15 through 20. All right. But before I, I look at those two truths, I want to to kind of frame our understanding of this by looking to Resurrection Sunday, the first Resurrection Sunday. I want to look to Luke chapter 24. And there in Luke chapter 24, we see first the women who come to perform the burial rites, realize the tomb is empty. They're told of the resurrected Christ. They rush to tell the disciples. We looked at this in our sunrise service. They rush to tell the other disciples. The other disciples don't believe, but Peter sprints to go and see. And then there's this interesting story in Luke chapter 24. It's one of my favorite stories from Resurrection Sunday, and that's the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to these two unnamed disciples and they're discussing amongst themselves, dejected about what has happened, thinking that Jesus is dead for good. And Jesus appears to them, and they unknowingly are talking to Jesus himself. They don't, they don't recognize him. And as they're talking to him, they, they rebuke him for not knowing. How could you not know the things that have happened in these days? Verse 45. So he rebukes them back saying, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, so this after they had made it to their destination, they've sat down at a table to eat. And he opened, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then, a little later on, as he's with them, 
And he's discussing these things with the disciples. That's what he says after, excuse me, that's what he says to the disciples as he sat down with them. This is also what he does for those disciples on the road to Emmaus is he opens their eyes to understand beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says. He breaks down and shows all the things regarding himself in the scriptures. And then he goes in the passage we just read is what he says to the original 11. So, What's the point in saying this? In his great commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, the resurrected Christ leads with telling his disciples what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. So that therefore is that that all authority has been given to him. Therefore, you should go in his command, making disciples of all nations. So, here's what I want us to see. Why I mention these two things, resurrected Christ, revealing the resurrected Christ in the scriptures, that's a tremendous thought to grasp, the resurrected Christ commissioning his disciples, revealing that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. If we don't have an ever-increasing grand view of Christ, then how can we possibly go in his authority, understanding all things regarding him, and according to his word. Because that's what Jesus reveals to the disciples here. The disciples on the road to Emmaus and the 11 disciples. He shows them in the word the things regarding himself. 1 Corinthians 15. Again, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he goes on to say, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And so here's how I want to frame as we prepare to unpack this portrait of Christ painted for us by Paul in verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1. Truth number one that I want to frame our understanding of this. Rightly understanding Christ is the key to rightly understanding life. In particular, rightly understanding Christ as revealed in his word. Because we can't have no revelation of God outside of what God has revealed of himself. is according to his word. There's natural revelation as what he has revealed to himself in nature. But in order to have a knowledge that saves, a faith that saves, we must know God as he has revealed himself in his word. And rightly understanding Christ as revealed in his word is the key to rightly understanding life. If you don't know the resurrected Christ, then you don't know life. If we don't get this right, then it doesn't matter how much else we seek to fill our minds and our bellies and our satisfactions with. If we're not submitting to the lordship of the resurrected Christ, then we are still lost in sin and death. Adversely, I can fill my head with all the lofty theological book knowledge that I can and still not have a knowledge and faith that saves of the resurrected Christ as revealed in the scriptures. A knowledge and faith which elevates Christ as higher than any other thing I have ever known or ever will know. 
And I've known people like this. I went to school with people like this who love to delve into the theoretical and the deep philosophy and theological weighty thoughts, but were never showing fruit of having been enamored by the resurrected Christ as revealed in his word. Let us not be one of those. I, I can't truly know who I am until I come to know God through the face of the resurrected Christ. And if I don't know God, I can't fully know who I am in the eyes of my creator. And if I don't know who I am, then my life will be a tangled mess of pursuits and of endless searches for reality without ever knowing the truth. Thus, when those two disciples, those nameless disciples, encounter the resurrected Christ on the road to Emmaus, there in Luke 24, they are despondent when they first come to see this man that they don't recognize as Christ. So they condescendingly tell him of all their hope has been lost in the death of Jesus. And Jesus then rebukes their unfaithfulness saying, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, there's the word. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And again, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then upon seeing that truth of the suffering, resurrected Christ in scripture, these men promptly recognized Jesus as they settled to eat with him. And they... Jesus disappears from their sight and they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Those who walked away dejected rushed back with hearts full of joy. Those disciples who did not believe the report of the women who came back from the tomb were filled with joy at seeing the resurrected Christ and seeing him point them to himself in the scriptures. Here's the second truth that frames our understanding of everything we're about to see in Colossians 1. Our joy must be found in the lordship of the resurrected Christ. Our joy must be found in the lordship of the resurrected Christ. Because if our joy is not found in the lordship of the resurrected Christ, then we will live weak, ineffectual lives. And that's the heart of what Paul gets to is he wants to pray for the church at Colossae, that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. With joy. Why? Joy in what? In whom? In knowing the resurrected Christ. Because ultimately, if we find our joy in the things of this life only, then that joy is by definition temporary and fleeting. Now, here's one of the dangers. We can do this same thing with Christ. We can listen to preachers and evangelists tell us of all the great things about what Christ can do for us and provide for us and give us in this life. And then so narrow our understanding of Christ that we find ourselves believing in a different Christ altogether. Believing in a Christ that existed solely to serve us, to provide us with what we want and give us discomfort and affirmation. 
rather than the Christ, the resurrected Christ as revealed in the scriptures. And this is part of Paul's emphasis to the church in Corinth in saying, if in Christ, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. So the call is to have such a high view of Christ as according to the scriptures that it goes well beyond what he can do for me, but rather how his death brings about in me a new life in which I am solely focused on my joy being in him and glorifying him above all else. So we must be cautious that we don't paint a portrait of Christ that is solely based off what he can provide us in this life. Jesus is not about what he can provide for you in this life. He's about supernaturally changing your life, bringing us from death to life that we may be eternally fixated on him and his glory forevermore. The resurrection forces us to come to grips with this reality. If you follow a false Christ that is simplified to providing you health and wealth and happiness of days, then sure, the resurrection isn't all that important because those things are for this life only. But to follow the true Christ, you must grapple with the eternal implications of the resurrection. And with all that in mind, I want us to unpack this amazing portrait of the all-powerful resurrected Christ painted for us here in Colossians 1. So again, pick back up Colossians 1 verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So we'll pause right there. Now the first thing that should stick out to us here is this contradiction of human thought. How can something, which is by definition unable to be seen or depicted, be seen and depicted? The other thing which ought to stick out to us, which may not be quite as overt, is the truth that God sent the image of himself. And I want us to realize here that Jesus confounds all human thought. Jesus did not come at the will of God the Father according to his providential plan of salvation, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, the word made flesh, in order that he might neatly fit into whatever infinitesimally small box that our human minds can be capable of making for him. So in Christ, God reveals the image of himself in bodily form, not carved or cast. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is what we see later on in verse 19. Thus, in Jesus' resurrection, we see a physical bodily resurrection. He had a body. He laid it down willingly, and he took it back up again, just as he said. The other way we see this first verse alone confounds human thought, continuing there with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, just a, a, a cursory reading of that has led many to a ill thought toward Christ and a small Christ. Now here we find the second namesake of this series, right? The first, right? Our first namesake for this series came from 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 20, which we saw, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. And this is where I want to make some clarification and some distinction on this term of first fruits and firstborn. What's the difference? Why use these different terms? Because they emphasize different things of Christ's deity. In saying Christ is the first fruits, Paul is denoting and emphasizing the sequential order of events and the quality of what is to come in our resurrection and glorification and showing how Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. With him being the first fruits, the rest of the crop is still to come. And the first fruits tells us of the quality of the rest of the crop. So here we have a different term used, firstborn, to emphasize a different attribute. And using the term firstborn, Paul is emphasizing the honor due Christ as receiving the rights of the firstborn. This is not to say that Christ was the first created thing, as some have unfortunately read. This is what the Arians of Paul's day believe. This is what Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons of our day believe. The problem with that is that in believing such, not only do you minimize Christ, you strip him of deity and lordship, thus believing in a different Christ altogether. So this truth is made clear as Paul expounds on this idea of Christ as firstborn of all creation. And because as we continue reading, we realize he couldn't have been the first created thing. It makes it clear. So I want us to see as the breakdown, the rest of your outline there, this next thing is that he is preeminent over creation. Picking back up in verse 16. For by him all things were created. He didn't create himself. He's the firstborn, which means he is the head, the first. He is do all the rights. We've seen many cases in the Old Testament where the true firstborn did not receive the rights of the firstborn. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Again, another point as to how firstborn cannot mean that he is first created thing. And in him, all things hold together. So what do we see here? Zelensky and Putin. Trump, Biden, Z, Macron, Merkel, Trudeau, whichever world leader, authority, power you want to think of. He created and rules over all of them, and they move at his will. And no matter what they do, they ultimately will serve his glory in the end. So there is, nor has there ever been, a created ruler or thing that is not held together by Christ. So what's the implications of all of this? That he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. By him all things created, heaven and on earth. So there is no span, there's no place in which things have been created that were not created by him. Visible, invisible. Thrones, dominions. There's no throne that is not out of his reach that he did not give the authority to. Before all things, all things hold together. What are the implications of all this? 
He is preeminent over creation, and there are no exceptions to Christ's lordship. It is so important that we understand, we don't get to understand God in a way that makes us comfortable or leaves us feeling affirmed and full of knowledge. We come to understand God as he has revealed himself in his word. So what Paul has built up here is he has given us four inferences of Christ's lordship and preeminence. Four things. That he's one with God the Father. All things were created by him and for him. Lord of all rulers and authorities. And he is the sustainer of all things. Which means as you sit here now, God has placed eternity in your heart. And the only thing which can satisfy our sinful broken hearts is to be made whole by our creator, by the one who holds us together. The question which looms over eternity is do you submit to his loving lordship? Because either you will submit now or you will unwillingly submit to his lordship because every knee will bow. You continue reading there, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. We continue to see how far-reaching this preeminence is. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that term again, that in everything he might be preeminent. So there's a, a distinguishing characteristic between Paul's description of Christ as firstborn in verse 15 and his description here in verse 18. It's very subtle. So he clearly de defines two differences here. Back in verse 15, Christ describes the firstborn of all creation as over. Here in verse 18, Paul clearly does not use the same phrasing, but describes Christ as the firstborn from the dead. Therefore, pointing to his resurrection. So due him are all the rights of the firstborn, and as such he is due all those whom he has ransomed from the domain of darkness. And therefore he sits as head over his church. His death and resurrection have awarded him as the head of all those who have or ever will rise from the dead. So we've seen Christ as preeminent, over creation, and now Paul paints the, this part of the portrait that he's preeminent over salvation. So don't miss this. Now, we've seen Christ preeminent over creation history from eternity past to eternity future. Now we get to see Christ as preeminent over redemption history from eternity past to eternity future. So just as all creation is in, through, and for Jesus and held together by Jesus, so too now all salvation is in him. Paul goes on to expound on this later on in chapter 2 of Colossians. You can just kind of flip one page or <clears throat> maybe in your Bible you don't even have to turn a page. But Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. Paul's expounding on his opening statements and saying how we are, have, if we have received Christ as Lord, we should walk in him therefore. Rooted and built up in him, he says. In verse 11, he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So the very rulers and authorities, which he stands as creator of, he disarmed them, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul here describes our new life in Christ using resurrection terminology. So in Christ, we are brought to, from death to life and given new life, which his resurrection reveals to us. And then ultimately, just as Christ was bodily resurrected, so too those who are in him will be brought to new life, once again, in our glorification on the last day. As you continue reading there, going, going back there to chapter 1, he uses this resurrection terminology to describe our new life in Christ. And he continues to expound on this increasingly grand picture of Christ. John MacArthur called this the greatest hymn of Christ that was ever written here in verses 15 through 20. We pick back up in verse 19. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now here we have only two persons of the Trinity mentioned, but this is a description of the Trinity nonetheless. In doing so, Paul uses terminology which both takes our minds to the Old Testament temple, which was filled with the presence of the Lord. This terminology also strikes down any attempt to say that there is deity outside of the Godhead, which undoubtedly some of Paul's detractors and those who he is countering here were doing, saying that there was a plurality of spirits. No other person nor plurality of spirits contains the deity of God, for it dwells in fullness in Christ. Now, how, how could we, who we've already said are darkened in our hearts of sin, possibly come to know or be in communion with the one who is so great and preeminent in all things, preeminent over creation, preeminent over salvation, all things in him hold together. He is before all things, head of the body of the church. Beginning, firstborn from the dead, firstborn from all creation. In everything, he is preeminent and the fullness of God dwells in him. How could we have communion with him? Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now we should be careful lest we should read or think universalism into that verse right there. So he has reconciled all things, some people will say. They'll read that and they'll say, therefore, all are saved no matter what. But Paul's made that pretty clear in everything else that he said, that that's not true. 
In Christ, God has reconciled, called out to the world, saying, submit to the lordship of Christ and you can be saved. And each and every one of us have said, no, I don't want that. I want my joy to remain here. Here is where it's sweet. And what I want is where it's good. Only those who submit to the Lordship of Christ submit to all that he has accomplished by making peace by the blood of the cross can have that peace with God. And that's the next point there on your outline. By the grace of the cross, we can find our joy in him. It is only through the grace of the cross that we can find our joy in him. Why do we need statements like this? It is very much thought that this was an early Christian creed, verses 15 through 20. Why is it good for us to have creeds and confessions like this? Because they are constant reminders. Because Blake Dover gets all too easily caught up in his own pride, arrogance, and downright foolishness. So I need to be reminded Christ is Lord and that that is where my joy is to be found. And I have to constantly submit my flesh and die to that flesh daily to remind myself that how I show Christ's love to others, how I treat my wife, my children, how I treat my church, that says everything about whether or not peace has been made between me and God. That says everything about what I think about the glorious preeminent Christ. And that's why we need constant reminder of statements like this. Later on in chapter 3 here of Colossians, I'll encourage you to turn there. Colossians chapter 3. Paul in continuing and unveiling and unpacking all of these implications says, if then you have been raised with Christ, verse 1 of chapter 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Again, the resurrected Christ, the reigning, resurrected, preeminent Christ. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So when he appears, we will be resurrected with him. Christ is preeminent in all things because he is alive, reigning, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And this is the good news of knowing the preeminent resurrected Christ. I deliver to you of first importance, Paul said in, to the church at Corinth. And where did the resurrected Christ point his disciples to the scriptures to see himself and to be overwhelmed at knowing him not just a, him standing there in front of them because he knew he would soon be leaving their presence, but to be overwhelmed at the truth of him as written from eternity in the providence of God the Father. So don't leave here today finding your joy in anything or anyone else than this 
picture of Christ painted here in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Submit to the preeminent resurrected Christ by the grace of the cross. For that final point there on your outline, I want to point you back to Paul's introduction. There in Colossians 1. Because, again, I said, I made this statement earlier, that if we don't find our joy in the resurrected Christ, we will live weak and ineffectual lives. And that's not what Paul wants for the church. And so, again, he prays for the church. Prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, verse 9, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, growing ever in your understanding of him as revealed in his word, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he paints this picture of the preeminent resurrected Christ. And that last point there on your outline is that the church is strengthened by knowing and savoring the preeminent resurrected Christ. In our sunrise service, we, we tracked along Holy Week and we looked at the life of Peter and the shortcomings of Peter in that. And we see a very different Peter when we start than when we end. And even then, when we go beyond and you go into Acts and you see the establishment of the early church. And Peter preaches Christ and him crucified and resurrected just as Christ outlined for him in the scriptures and responding to the resurrected Christ as revealed in the scriptures is what starts and prompts the hearts of the early church to come to salvation. If you need strengthening and you are a believer, look to the resurrected Christ. If you need life, if you need to find joy, if you need understanding for who you are, and you do not know the resurrected Christ, look to the resurrected Christ. And he will provide you that joy, that life, that understanding, that identity, not just for this life. He will provide you that peace, not just for this life. But he will provide you all those things, not just to satisfy yourself, but that you may glorify him by finding your joy in him. If you need strength, if you need endurance, if you need to be renewed, look to the resurrected Christ and be filled. Because in doing so, not only can you find present peace in this life, but eternal joy and satisfaction in glorifying the preeminent resurrected Christ. Lord, we love you. We praise you for the resurrection. Help us to treasure, value, and find our joy in the preeminent resurrected Christ and may we look nowhere else I pray once again Lord that if there is anyone here that does not know you has not 
come to treasure the preeminent resurrected Christ. I pray that you would prompt them. Draw them to yourself. Urge them to repentance and forgiveness of sins. And draw them to faith. Pray, Lord, for those of us who do believe, who are part of your church, that you would help us to be strengthened by knowing the preeminent resurrected Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.